A Sports Fix Tuesday coming up. Tommy standing by uh, and will join us here momentarily. This podcast today is title sponsored by Window Nation. And right now, Window Nation's offering 50% off all window styles. It's a perfect time right now to get windows. If you've been thinking about windows, we're approaching fall. It's September 1st, everybody. And fall's going to be here before we know it, then winter. And if you've been thinking about uh, changing windows and getting new ones, give Window Nation a shot. 50% off all window styles, zero money down, zero payments, and zero interest for two full years. Call them at 866-90-NATION or go online to set up an an in-home estimate uh, or a virtual online estimate for free at windownation.com and tell them that I sent you. You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. You're listening to The Sports Fix. That's right. It's a Sports Fix Tuesday. Tommy, live from, what do you call it? Your Fortress of Solitude Fortress, in Frederick, Fortress Maryland? Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, Superman fans will know what I'm talking about. Okay. And Seinfeld, and Seinfeld fans. Uh, and I am in studio, and uh, we have a lot to talk about today. First of all, there was a big story last night with the league uh, supposedly taking back the inv- investigation of the of the skins, um, Dan Snyder and Tanya Snyder. Uh, both put out a statement saying that it was their idea. We're going to get to all of that. Tommy's going to weigh in certainly on his um, memories of Coach Thompson, um, as I did yesterday. Uh, I did want to start with this because we were just talking before we started to record the show that um, we were talking about management, basically. Um, And the management groups that you and I have, had, have been exposed to in, in in media. I mean, you've been in media for your entire life working for newspapers and then, of course, radio stations. I think your best employer by far and away would be the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast, um, which is managed uh, pretty well. Um, but but the, it's a, the only problem is it's a non-union shop. It's a non-union shop, although... Somebody did reach out to me about, you know, hey, uh, what do you think? I'm like, well, tell me about your health plan. Um, anyway, uh, the um, we were talking just about, and look, I've said this before. I, I, I spent the first half of my professional career in business, and then the last half of my professional career, and maybe hopefully it's the middle third um, of my professional career, um, in media and in broadcasting and working in radio primarily. And Gary Braun once said this because Gary is a good friend of mine and Gary, big part of the Tony Kornheiser show. And Gary and I were co-hosts together on the John Riggins show for a couple of years in 2006, 2007. And Gary um, and I are, are, are good friends. And Gary once said, and I'll never forget it, and I've used it many times, he's like, once you get a load of this industry, you'll realize that it's run by C minus students. You know, it's a C minus industry and nothing he's ever told me has ever been closer to the truth. And look, we've, we have been fortunate on occasion to work with some people who were quality people, bright people um, in radio. But uh, you and I, I think, would both say that the majority of people on the other side of the building, the non-content side of the building, not rocket scientists for the most part over the years, right? Uh, Look, I think, and this will sound very uh, obnoxious and arrogant, in, in the creative business, 
whether it's, it's, you know, on radio or writing, or I think any creative business, the smartest people are usually the talent. <laughs> they are. Uh, I mean, right? I mean, I mean, usually they are. I mean, the people who Well, we've known some smart, dummies that produce content, too. I mean, it's not like, look... I, I know that, but, but, I, but in, the, in the big scheme of things, usually, at least in the newspaper business, you know, the smartest people are the ones out there writing. Tommy, you know, and and po- I mean, and and you talk about how we've met some people in the business who have been smart. They stand out because they're so rare. There are people. I've had editors, a couple. I've had maybe three editors, uh, probably, who I would consider just to have just. I, I mean, just I, I admire. For, for their intelligence and ability. I've been in newspaper business for over 40 years. I think the newspaper business in terms of management probably, you know, not C minus. I'm really specifically talking about the radio business in particular. But you know, I'm it, talking about all creative all I, creative industries. Well, what's interesting about that is look, I mean, there are smart people and there are limited people on both sides. It's been our experience with radio in particular that the smarter smartest people we've known in this particular business we've been in have be, typically been the people that have been the on the creative side, the content side, the the, the talent if you want to call them that. And that's not, you know, us backslapping ourselves cuz we've got limitations too, but you some of the people that we've come across in management radio stunningly limited. I mean, like wow. Um, and you know, when you said that it's true, like if I were just sitting here thinking, you know what, I'm going to start, um, I'm going to start a technology business and I've got to hire from the people that I've worked with over the last 15 years. It would be all people that have been on the air at the radio station and very few people from out, from other parts of the building. That's true. That is true. Yeah. I I, I, I I think I think it's just the same way uh, for you know for a lot of creative businesses and uh, and I I think you know what also comes into play here's the other thing creative people are and this is so stereotypical creative people are usually difficult people <laughs> not and all they, they tend, just you not all not yes yeah, not not you right they they tend not to last. Uh, in, in certain positions from time to time, whereas certain management positions are filled by people who are not difficult, who are basically, they they outlast the difficult people, you know, and they happen to be there when the job, the Peter Principle, they happen to be there when the job opens up because they haven't been difficult and they've done what they've been told. And there they are. Before you know it, they're running everything. Um, I'll tell you why we brought this up. Because um, I'm bringing it up because I want to lead to a recommendation for you and for anybody else that loves the show that we talk about every once in a while here on the podcast that we both love, which is The Office, the American version. I love the BBC version as well. But there's a, a new podcast that I just came across. I've told you about... 
the um, Office Ladies podcast with Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey. If you've watched the show, that's Pam Beasley and Angela Martin on the show. And you and I are both fans of both of them. I, we, I, we, we love Jenna Fisher. We, we think she was perfect for the role. Um, and that podcast has been... Over the last six months, I think it's one of the top five uh, downloaded podcasts in the world Um, because the show itself has become the all-time most successful show on Netflix. You know, many years after it, it, you know, taped its last finale in 2015 or whatever that was, Tommy. You, You might know the actual date on that. Anyway, the oral history of The Office is a podcast done by Brian Baumgartner, who played Kevin Malone on The Office. And I started listening to this recently, and it's really good. Now, the Jenna Fisher-Angela Kinsey podcast is really good if you're a fan of the show. For me, it can be a bit girly. Um, There's a bit too much talking about hairstyles and who was wearing what and what episode or they, they go, it's a rewatch podcast. So they go episode by episode. They've had some great guests on like recently they had Mindy Kaling on, they had um, Ed Helms on with a recent podcast. He's funny. Um, But the Brian Baumgartner podcast, Kevin Malone of all people, an oral history of the office debuted last month. And I've listened to a couple of episodes. It is excellent. And it gets into really how the whole thing came about early on. And the reason that I bring it up is, A, you would like it a lot. Um, and anybody else that is a fan of the show will like um, will like this podcast. He's excellent, by the way. You know, you think of Kevin Malone being, you know, a dunce and slow and the whole thing. Um, but Brian Baumgartner is really with it. And, and he's produced a really good podcast. But in the first episode, maybe it's the second, they talk about how this series came to the U.S. And there's this gentleman named Ben Silverman who essentially was the guy that was over in the U.K., was watching the BBC version, fell in love with it. He was a TV guy back in the States. And he you know, met with Ricky Gervais, called, got his phone number, met with him at a Starbucks in, in London, um, told him about how much he loved the show. Uh, Gervais is on, you know, is on the show. So is um, uh, Stephen Merchant, who were they were the two co- co-founders of the BBC version, which I know you've never watched, but I promise you, if you did, you would love it. Um, and anyway, to make a long story short, there, this guy Ben Silverman's telling Brian Baumgartner about how hard it was to get the BBC to do a deal with him to bring the show to the U.S. And somebody at one point during a meeting from the BBC said, will America really like a show with like a middle, you know, um, a middle management boss that's such a dummy, such a dunce? And Ricky Gervais, who was in the meeting, said, well, why don't you just get up off of your chair and walk around this building for a little while if you think that David Brent, the character Ricky Gervais played, is really dumb. Like he was saying, the BBC was incredibly bureaucratic and just people with no vision and slow in the whole thing. And apparently the guy you know, looked around and got a laugh out of it and said, all right, and, and they did a deal with this guy, Ben Silverman, who took it to Greg Daniels, who was the show runner here in the U.S. for The Office. And then it was about 
finding a network. And that's an interesting story, too, because this guy, Kevin Riley, who was at FX, FX was going to buy the show because Riley was the only one that they pitched it to that got it. There was nothing like it on TV at the time in the early to to mid-2000s. And Riley left FX, went to NBC, was the only person willing to take um, uh, a flyer on, you know, a mockumentary-style show, which had never been done in the U.S., and he was the one that, you know, basically gave these guys a shot and the rest is history with the show. But the the podcast is actually r- really good. Um, and I actually like it a little bit more than the other one, although the other one's good, too. And, you know, they're both they're both good together. They're best friends. Um, but again, like you have to sort of fast forward. I'm sure like some people do with our podcast. When I start rambling about something or your voice hits a certain pitch level, they'll, they'll jump forward 15 seconds um, and get to the next uh, part that hopefully is better. And that's what I find myself doing with the girls podcast. Um, but, uh, but Brian, you'd like Brian Baumgartner's um, podcast. It's good. They're only four or five episodes at this point and, and they're short too. They're only like 30 to 40 minutes each. They're not, you know, an hour and a half. Okay. Uh, first of all, Ben Silverman yes. was in four episodes of The Office in the ninth season. Uh, who, played, who did he play? He played Isaac, one of Jim's business partners. Oh, yeah, sure, um, in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. So one of those guys was Ben Silverman. Okay. Uh, the second thing is, and this will tell everybody out there what an honest podcast this is, okay? I don't listen to any podcast. <laughs> I don't. I don't listen. I don't even. I didn't even listen to my own. Right. I had one for a couple of years. You know, I don't want to. I, I'm not interested in hearing anyone. Talk. I don't listen to sports talk radio. I listen to Chad. I do listen to Chad because Chad, I think, is entertaining, and I listen to you sometimes when I'm up that early in the morning. But other than that, that's it. I mean, I I listen to music. I I try to hang on to. Driving around in my car when I'm 18, 19 years old for three hours at a time, wasting a tank of gas, listening to music. I'm 66 years old, and I hang on to that as much as I can. So I don't listen to any books on tape. (laughs) I don't listen to any podcasts. I listen to music all the time if if I'm listening to anything. It's music. That's funny. And it's music that I like. It's not for music that I'm interested in being introduced to. I don't want to know about any more new music. I want the music that I like. Okay, so we are similar in that I would bet you that the majority of time that I'm in the car, I listen to music. That's number one, especially during the last six or seven months. Um, I listen to a lot of music that I like. You know, I've created playlists on Spotify. Um, and Spotify is great at, you know, then you creating daily mixes, which, you know, I will listen to, but I listen to a lot of music as well. I, my preference in the car by myself is to listen to music. The difference is I do listen to a lot of new music, but it's usually not with me finding it. It's usually with my son finding it. You know, my son's a musician, he's in a band and he'll say, you'll you'll really like this new band or you know if it's not new it's something that i haven't heard before however right the difference is 
I never listened to a podcast until I started to do one. And even then, I rarely listen to a podcast. But I do find myself listening to podcasts much more than radio. Now, I listen to you know sports radio recently because we've gotten into some games and you know this Tommy like a lot of times you know there's very little that's original in this business you're listening to stuff you'll hear a caller say something on a on another show you'll hear a host say something it'll spark a thought you'll write it down and you'll be like you know what I'm going to do something. It may not be exactly like this, but I, I've got an idea. And I, I, I listen. I'll tell you. I listen to. I'm not going to tell you what I listen to and don't listen to. But I, you know, I certainly listen to our station, and I, I listen to Zabe. Although I haven't found myself listening to him as much because I'm not in the car that time of day. I'll listen to Mad Dog a lot on XM Sirius. Um, and you know, I'll listen to the other shows. You know, on your station, I really don't listen. Obviously, I, I don't listen in the morning because I'm on opposite those guys, even though I like those guys. And I think I think I totally get why they work and always have understood why they work. Um, but really, you know, from my show into this podcast that we do, I don't really have a chance to listen that much to the other stuff. But I have started to become much more of a podcast fan and listen to various podcasts. But I would bet you... 55, 60% of, of the time is music. Uh, th- 20% of the time is, you know, 25% of the time is um, is radio, but talk radio, not music radio. Um, and then the rest would be podcasts. Okay. Uh, I, think, I mean, I just think music, music makes me feel good. Me too. I'm the same you way. You know, it just, it just does. It makes me feel, particularly music where you can connect to a certain moment yes you know and so i mean i mean i think it i think it helps my attitude every day i wake up in the morning first thing i do is turn my phone on the music when i'm in the, when i'm getting ready for the morning i got music on all the time every single time i jump into a shower i take my phone and i blare and i and i hit spotify and i'm listening to music it's a good i think it's a good way to start the day now i know a lot of people uh who listen to podcasts all the time you know my son uh my oldest son listens to a lot of podcasts uh i you know it's ironic the only time i've listened to my own podcast that i used to do cigars and curveballs yeah was when i would transcribe something to write a column about it <laughs> from an interview i did which i actually i wound up doing yesterday to write a column about john thompson because that, he had been a guest on my podcast. Right. So I, I wound up listening to that podcast finally and transcribing it uh, for notes for a column I, uh, that I wrote for today's paper. That's interesting. That's the only time I, I, I listened to, okay, so, listen to my podcast. Okay, so I wasn't a podcast listener either. You know, I'm just giving you, you know, an, an idea. I think if you listen to this the Oral History of the Office podcast hosted by Brian Baumgartner. I think you will you'll you'll thank me for it. But I've said this before, and you're again. I, 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 I'm, I, I, I I'm on repeat here. 
I'm on repeat. You and Scott are the same people when it comes to new things. You want to discover it yourself or it's not any good in your own mind. And that's just it's I, a ridiculous I, I, way to proceed. I, I admit to that 100%. Okay, let's get to... If I'm not on the ground floor, I'm not interested <laughs> in getting on on the seventh floor. All right, let's get to um, Coach Thompson and get your thoughts because I spent 30 minutes yesterday um, talking about Coach Um and we'll get to that uh, in a moment. But first, I want to tell you about the opportunity you have right now uh, with my bookie. So right now, there's a really good deal going with my bookie. If you use my promo code, Kevin DC, all right, they're going to double your first deposit. We've got football this weekend. By the way, just as an aside, there may be a smell test this Friday. There's some college football games. I'm going to look at the board. I don't, you know, it's there, there aren't any big name teams playing. BYU Navy is is a week uh, is on Labor Day night, um, but there could be a, a, a small smell test on Friday's show. But um, mybookie.ag, you can trust. You are going to get solid lines. You're going to get fair pricing, and you're going to get paid if you win. And you may already have a site that you're using right now, but that doesn't mean a second site doesn't make sense. You can compare lines and compare pricing on on certain bets and and use the best one. Most of my friends that wager have multiple sites. So if you already have a site, I would still check out MyBookie. And if you don't have one, definitely go to MyBookie.ag. MyBookie, use my promo code, KevinDC. They'll double your first deposit. You'll get up to $1,000 in free play designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet. Again, Kevin DC, the promo code, they'll double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today only at my bookie. All right, I um I spent time yesterday, um, and it, it's funny because when I got done with the podcast yesterday, I watched a lot. I read a lot of, of people that wrote uh, about uh, Coach Thompson. You wrote about Coach Thompson in the Washington Times. Go ahead and share your your thoughts um, on him. You and I both had, you know, not what Doc and and Al Koken and Brian Mitchell and and CJ and Chuck Sapienza had in terms of being with him every day in his media career. But you and I did for seven and a half years the show that preceded his, and we ended up having many conversations with Coach over the years. And and I had a lot of memories that I shared with people yesterday. What about yours? Boy, that was a great video that that you sent out about him uh, coming in the, to uh, – talk to you in the studio for were, that that was the last day of his show were you there that day because you're not in the video and i and i have a feeling that you were off that day i i, I was off that day okay i, I was all you know where i was i think it was i think i was in spring training in florida that that would have made sense because it was march yeah, it yeah was, i was in i was in spring training because i remember listening to his show uh via the via you know uh my phone right the last show so yeah, absolutely. I I was not there, uh, but that was a great video. He, you know, uh, I, I want to just say this before you get started. He loved our show. You know, he told us that. Um, he he. Uh, for those listening, he he really liked Tommy. I mean, I I I had a good relationship with Coach, and we would debate and argue different things. And I know that he liked our show, and I know that he liked me. He loved Tommy's old school stories and and everything else. And I mean, it was really was kind of a cool thing to be in that building with him. I mean, we were in the building with a lot of people at various times that were, but there was something about him. Um, 
that was just memorable. You know, the, the things he said and the conversations that we had with him over the years. But go ahead. Give me your thoughts. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think of that all the time. I always think of, I always call them the gifts I've been given in my career. Uh, and I realized that, I just reminded of it yesterday, uh, you know, writing about John Thompson on Frank Robinson's birthday. And that I was fortunate enough to know both of these men very well. You know, I mean, I look, uh, before I became a sports writer in 92, I was a fan and I was in awe of, and I was still, I'm still in awe of these guys, but it would have been uh, impossible for me to think that someday I would be, you know, talking, talking about sports face to face with Frank Robinson or John Thompson. So I'm always forever grateful for those kinds of gifts. That, that we've had in this business. And one, one other thing is, remember the conversation we had, maybe it was the last podcast, about uh, phone numbers that we have of people I who know, have died? I know. Now we have another one. I know, and I pulled that up, and, you know, um, I went through, um, you know, basically, he used to text me, Tommy. I, I don't even know if I shared this with you. Long after he left radio, I would get, you know, I don't know. It's not like it was a lot. Two, three, four times a year, you know, I would get a text. He was listening and he would say, you know, hey, boy, you don't know what you're talking about on some. Or he'd say, <laughs> you know what? You were spot on. I, I specifically remember, and I think I shared this yesterday, when Jay Gruden absolutely submarined and embarrassed RG3 publicly in that story on NFL.com in 2014, remember at the end of the year? I, oh, yeah. I I said to you, I said, this is the wrong thing to do. You don't do this. This is not going to play well. This is a sign of insecurity and weakness. This is something that's addressed behind closed doors. And I'll never forget, he, he texted me or, or called me and he was like, you you hit you nailed it like this is not so, this is a bad sign when it comes to Gruden that he would let his frustrations get to the point and his emotions get to the point where he would go public on his key player on his star player but but anyway I had not heard from him text wise in at least a year and a half two years he wasn't he was on and off not you know um on and off sick you know over the last um, right. several years but anyway well, yes couple, another another phone years, number yeah. in our contact yeah. list right a couple of years ago he was kind enough to be on come on the cigars and curveballs podcast and uh you know uh, he loved talking about baseball right baseball was his first love uh, he told me that baseball was the sport that got him involved in sports. In those days, he said, kids in my neighborhood didn't play a lot of basketball. He said that his first introduction to sports was about baseball, and he used to love to go to Griffith Stadium with his dad and watch Larry Doby play. Larry Doby being the first sure. uh, black player in the American League who played for the Cleveland Indians. Uh, and... Uh, you know, he, he, he had a statue of Dobie in his office at Georgetown. That's how much he revered him. And he told the story about uh, once they were playing Seton Hall uh, up in New Jersey, uh, and somebody had mentioned, they were running a practice, somebody had mentioned that Dobie was sitting up in the stands watching practice. Uh, I think, uh, you know, he was working for... Uh, 
might have been working for the uh, Nets or for Seton Hall at the time. Right. Uh, and uh, Thompson said he stopped practice and made the kids go up and meet him and shake his hand because, quote, he meant so much to me in terms of looking forward and having and aspiring to have role models. Dobie was as important in my life as uh, number 14 Elgin Baylor was as I got older. So he liked talking baseball with me, and we talk a lot about baseball on that podcast. But uh, he also talked about, which I, I mentioned in the column, the three probably most influential figures he brought to Georgetown and how that happened, Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mooring, and, and uh, Alan Iverson. And he told the story about how uh, Iverson basically re- wound up recruiting him uh, instead of him recruiting Iverson because a bunch of guys led by Boo Williams, who was his famous uh, right. AAU coach in the Hampton Roads, came up to Georgetown to meet with Thompson and say, you know, can you take this kid? He really needs your guidance and he really needs your protection at this point. Uh, and uh, Coach said he wasn't really buying it. Uh, he didn't think the school needed that kind of pressure. Then Iverson's mother asked all of them to leave the room. And then it was just the two of them. And Coach said she broke down. She told me in essence that if you don't take my son, they're going to kill my son. Wow. And that's when, that's when he said uh, he thought he would take a chance on him. You what know, a conversation that must have been. Oh, my God. I mean, well, that's, you know, Allen Iverson when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. I yeah. mean, that's when he broke down and he said, you know, Coach Thompson saved my life. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's stuff about Patrick, stuff about Alonzo, how they got Alonzo because of, he was so impressed with watching Patrick in the uh, 82 uh, championship game against North Carolina and how he was blocking shots. Alonzo was uh, apparently that's he was such a, a fan of Patrick Ewing. That's what helped bring Alonzo to uh, Georgetown. And uh, the first time he saw Patrick, he was he was uh, up in New England at Boston Garden watching his high school play. But he was scouting another kid on Patrick's team. Patrick was a tenth grader, and that was the first time he saw him. And he said to his assistant coach, he said. Forget the kid we came for. Get that kid. <laughs> yeah. So that's that, the gist of the column is, is basically he was a trailblazer. And, you know, we use that term lightly, but when you're a trailblazer, it means you're doing something that people before you have not done. And if you're doing that, you're doing it against all odds with people trying to stop you from doing it. Right. It, to be a trailblazer means it's been very difficult to accomplish what you're trying to do. Him being the first uh, black coach to win an NCAA championship. So uh, that's the gist of the column, how he lived his life uh, basically battling all the time, but he was never really bitter. You know, he was, he was never bitter. Right. He, he, he felt like he was always battling. Um. I, I was reading a lot of tweets yesterday. Look, he was fearless. The the Rafael Edmonds story, which has been told so many times and got told, you know, another 
15,000 times yesterday is an act of bravery that that is incredible. I mean, you don't know what you're getting into. You're a basketball coach. You don't know you, you don't know anything about what this guy's capable of doing other than what you've heard, which is he's killed a lot of people and he's running a drug ring and he's a kingpin and and people are dying on the streets of DC and and he basically lights them up in his office and says, "If you go anywhere near one of my one of my players, you'll regret it." And, and he's and 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 Ray Fledman said, "Yes, sir," and never went near his players. But I, I was reading various stories from some, some of his former players, and there's some really good ones. From uh, first of all, and this was this was an experience that I had many times with him, and um, which is just the endearing, affectionate way in which he would refer to people that that you know he knew, I guess, could take it, or that he had some level of uh, of like for you know an MFer. I mean, I can't. Yeah. There were there yeah. were no less than a dozen times. Like he'd walk in, Tommy. I remember so many times. You you'd be back in your office after the show. I'd be in mine, and you know he was never when it came to, to being on time for his radio show. There were plenty of days where he walked in five ten minutes after it started. Right. Um, but I multiple times over the course of those years, he'd walk to my office. He'd go, motherfucker. What you were talking about, you couldn't be further from the truth. And then I would say, well, and then and then we'd go back and forth. But he was always like, there was never anything that was truly like you know intimidating. There was there was a teddy bear side to him, and he would he had a great smile and he had a great sense of humor. But I was reading from his former players and people that had worked with him. Everybody referred to, you know. Uh, this is Austin Freeman, you know, who played at DeMath and played for, um, you know, the Thompsons. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, this is – Austin Freeman didn't even play for Coach. I mean, he was played for JT3. Um, but, you know, JT yeah, – Big John was always around. And he said, funny story about Big John. So we would be in practice, and he would be there in his chair chilling, got it leaned back on the bleacher a little bit, but his hat was low covering his eyes. So I, I look over in my mind, he's asleep. Now practice is over. I'm walking out of the gym. He goes off. You BSing MF, this MF, Austin Freeman's tweeting. He sits me down after that and just talks to me and is like, you got all the talent in the world, MF, and things come easy to you, but boy, don't be afraid to be that mf -er we need. Now go on and get out of my face. <laughs> um, and then, oh, here's the other one, Austin Freeman. One time we just came back from playing pickup at Yates. And big coach sitting in Old Faithful, the chair. And when you walk in, you got to shake his hand. So a teammate of mine goes over and says, hey, coach, it's raining outside. Might want to watch out for the puddles and stuff so you don't get wet. And big coach goes, I walk on water, son. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, you know, it really is like, I, I know we've, I spent time on this yesterday, but this, when you're around somebody like that, who is bigger than life and by the way, smart, thoughtful, engaging the whole thing, there are just so many things that you just never forget, you know, 
Like we 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 I talked about yesterday all the different sayings, you know, the different sayings that he had um over the years, you know, rather tame a fool and have to resurrect a corpse, you know. Um things that by the way were wise and and made a lot of sense that always stuck with me. I I always enjoyed when he would say and I remember him telling me this about Gruden. Gruden had taken um the blame for like two losses in a row and he said, you know, um at some point, you better stop admitting that it's your fault because they may they may start to believe you. <laughs> you know, like those things. Like you know, you know that somebody had some level of impact when you when you quote them over and over again. Um, not... Remember, remember the grief he used to give you about Julius Irving. Oh, well, not only Dr. J, but about Georgetown versus Maryland, about clock management. I mean, my one of my favorite things, yeah, he he thought I was completely insane. And that was one of those days, you and I, I said, Dr. J's overrated. And you, yes. went, you went nuts. And I gave you a bunch of stuff. And we, we talked about it for a half an hour. We took calls. And that was one of those days he came in. And, you know, we're walking. And he's in the bullpen just waiting for me. And I get out. <laughs> there and he he may have been 20 minutes late for his show that day because we we were going back and forth in the bullpen but I, I I forget if I told this one yesterday but I'll never forget one of those days where you know I'm ripping Gruden or somebody for the way they manage the clock right and doing the whole clock management game management which I'm as you know I'm very convinced I could do better than probably three-fourths of the coaches in the NFL Right, and he walks in, and I think I was still sitting there, and maybe he walked in a little bit early, and then we get done, and he's just laughing and smiling and standing there over me, and I said, "What?" And he goes, "Motherfucker, you would choke so bad if you were on the sideline trying to figure out when to call a timeout." <laughs> he's like, "You could never do it under fire," and I just started laughing so hard. And then it was one of those, it was one of those shows where you know Doc starts off, "What were you talking about with Coach Sheehan? And then he starts laughing, and the two of them are laughing hysterically about how I would perform under pressure if I had to actually call timeouts in the right spot. <laughs> He's like, do you know how many things those motherfuckers have to deal with? And and you're telling me you'd be able to do it. And I just, by the way, I never came off my position that I'd be able to, I'd be able to, I'd be able to do it with, with cool uh, demeanor and deliver. But yeah, I mean, it was, um, you mentioned it. I mean, look, I mean, at that radio station, I mean, I, I, you know, hosting a show with Rigo for two years, you know, um, and, and doing yeah. as much stuff as I did with Riggins over the years was such a thrill. And it's funny because I know you feel the same way. Like people that don't uh, get that, that those opportunities are like, wow. But at, like, especially the guys that are really good guys, like John's like are Sonny. Real, like, and Sonny. Like, like Sonny. Yeah, Sonny they, they just, they just become, they just become people and you have these conversations, but then occasionally you'll just be like, I just sat there for 45 minutes and just bullshitted with Sonny Jurgensen, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. 
but uh, but Coach was man, he was something else. And you know, again, my perspective, as you know, was as a hardcore Maryland fan, as not a Georgetown fan, as somebody you know who grew up thinking, um, you know, that never wanted to see Georgetown do well because it it was you know c- competitive, even though they didn't play with Maryland right. in the market. By the way, I think I said this yesterday, but CJ and I were talking about it this morning. You know, the heyday of college basketball is the 1980s, right? 80s, 90s, you know. Which coincides with the Big East. Exactly. So, you know, Tommy, I don't, I think I I talked about this yesterday, but maybe it it had just occurred to me for the first time, or maybe it had occurred to me a while back and I just forgot about it. But, you know, D.C. was the only market in the country that had an ACC team and a Big East team. I mean, it was in many ways, and, and keep in mind, we had a terrible NBA team during those years, and we didn't have a baseball team, and the hockey team wasn't very good. And this right. was an era here in this city where college basketball was number two to the Redskins. It was. You know, whether it was Maryland, but then clearly it was Georgetown, because Maryland was a top 20 team every year, but Georgetown was number one. And they were contending for national championships. And with Patrick, you know, playing three titles in four years. But that that period of the 80s where you had Georgetown and you had a high-profile ACC team in the same market, we really, we really benefited. I mean, we had the best of it. Now, I wasn't a huge Big East fan. I loved the, the physical nature of those games and I watched all those games and and I loved Pearl Washington I don't know if I've ever told you that Pearl Washington was one of my favorite players and I loved Mullen too and I didn't like Georgetown didn't like I didn't like Georgetown they, to me they were a rival of, of Maryland and the better they did the more it hurt us whether it was recruiting or attention or whatever it was but um it was really um how fortunate we as basketball fans had it with the Big East and the ACC because the Big Ten was a great league, don't get me wrong, but every year it was Big East or ACC. Which one is better this yeah. year? That was it. Yeah, and it was the the height of the sport. I mean, the sport was not a, a, a one-month you know event sport for March Madness. It was paid attention to you know, from the beginning the season started. And, you know, that that reminds me, um, one of the biggest regular season games in college basketball history was Ralph Sampson against Patrick Ewing, Virginia against Georgetown in 83. I mean, that was a massive buildup for a game in December in the middle of football season, but it was huge. You wouldn't get that this, you know, in in these days, that kind of buildup. No, you know, I had asked John, uh, I'd asked Coach on the podcast, you know who were the coaches when you were when you were, you know, trying to to do what you accomplished? Were there any coaches who helped you along the way? Who were the people who didn't get your way? And he basically said, "You mean the assholes? Those kind of people? Yeah. Not not those people." And uh, he loved Dean Smith. He thought Dean, oh, he they treated were so Dean, close. Dean Smith like a like a brother. Yeah. Uh, and he mentioned Dave Gavin. The commissioner of the Big East, right. who didn't coach him at Providence, but did later coach Providence uh, with Marvin Barnes and Ernie Gregorio. He said those two guys were very influential in helping him accomplish what he did in his career at Georgetown. Yeah. 
So you um, mentioned Dave Gavin, who wound up, you know, building the Big East. Right. Somebody, and I forget where this came up, maybe CJ had read it somewhere, or maybe it was a story that he recalled, because um, you, you, we, we were talking about some of his former players, and you, you told a recruiting story uh, about Morning. He, um, when he was recruiting Patrick, uh, he was up, you know, uh, up in Boston, um, you know, watching him play a game, and he had a brown bag with a soda in it that he snuck into the gym. It was one of those, you know, no sodas in the gym. So he had a brown right. bag with a with with soda in it, and he and he pulled the brown bag out um, and in the stands. Oh, I know. I think I read it in Boz's column. I think this is where where I got it. And um, he started to, to drink from it, and it was Boz. It, that's I, I've got it memory uh, remembered now. It was Boz that was sitting with him, and he lo- he looks around. And he goes, "There are a lot of coaches in the building here tonight. I better put this brown bag away, or they're going to use it against me." You know, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean. We could go on and on. Um, I I thought it was really, really nice. And, you know, Tommy, last week on Friday, Lute Olson passed away. And Lute Olson's a Hall of Fame coach as well. And uh, Thompson's first Georgetown team that made a run in the NCAA tournament was the first year of the Big East. It was before Patrick, the 79-80 team. They beat Maryland in the Sweet 16 at the Spectrum in Philadelphia in one of the most hyped, you know, local events of my lifetime. I mean, the Maryland, uh, the Maryland Georgetown Sweet Sixteen game in Philadelphia in 1980 um, was so hyped locally, in part because Lefty and Thompson had gone after each other in the regular season game at the DC Armory in November. Maryland was ranked fifth in the country. They were a two seed. They had Buck Williams and Albert King and Greg Manning. Um, and Buck Williams hadn't played in the first game that they had lost to Georgetown. So Maryland was the favorite. They were supposed to win that game, and Georgetown won it. Um, and what, I, I know why they won it, too, because that game I've seen in recent years, I think it's on YouTube, they won the game. They were just a much better defensive team than Lefty. Lefty was never never had great defensive teams. And that team with uh, Sleepy Floyd and and Duran and, and, and Shelton was really uh, – Craig Shelton, the two Dunbar, and Bebe Duran from Dunbar. They were really good. And they got to the Elite Eight, and they lost to Iowa by one point. He almost went to the Final Four before Patrick even got there. And they lost by a point in the Elite Eight to Lute Olson's Iowa team. And Lute Olson went on and lost in the Final Four. I think that was the year that uh, – uh, it was uh, Daryl Griffith's year, um, the Louisville UCLA year. I got to look that up because I said that on radio this morning. I want to make sure I'm right. Um, 1980 NCAA tournament. Uh, I think that was the Louisville year. But anyway, um, my point that I was going to get to here is that Lute Olson was a Hall of Fame coach, and there was a nice, warm um, response. John Thompson's one of the biggest heavyweights in terms of coaches in the history of the sport, and his his reach extended far beyond sports, and you could tell that by the reaction all day yesterday. How many columns were written about this man yesterday? How many segments on shows or you know radio or TV, and how many people on social media that that came 
in um, close contact with him or even brief contact with him were were influenced by him. It's it's really amazing. I mean, the, the point was, it was not no disrespect to Lute Olson, but this was a reaction that 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 went well beyond sports yesterday. Yeah, as well it should. And you know what we gloss over is his second career was remarkable. I know for a guy who was considered an, an <laughs> anti media of the media. Yeah. He winds up becoming a broadcaster and radio talk show host and, and has a great career doing that. Well, the video that I put out that somebody had sent to me, and I remember that video and I think somebody had sent it to me five, six years ago. So I, I remembered it more recently. Um, I remember talking about him on that final show before his final show, and I remember saying, and I think it was said in that video, he, I, he, I, he loved doing talk radio. He loved it. And I knew he would miss it. And I remember running into either Ronnie, because I used to run into Ronnie all the time, because Ronnie had a son my son's age, and they played basketball against each other a bunch. Um, and by the way, that, that was my greatest thrill ever with Coach, was coaching against his grandson's team and him coming at halftime across the floor, giving me a big hug and saying, motherfucker, you're right. You do know what you're doing. <laughs> And we, we were up like 15 at halftime. We beat him badly. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget that. But anyway, um, he um, – where were we going with it? Oh, he loved, he loved talk radio, and he was good at it, and he was good at it on the most important days. You know, yes. even to this day, like how good would he have been in recent months talking about all the stuff that's going on in the world? This this yeah. would have been tailor made for him much more than you know Joe the fan on Monday talking about the football game from the day before that he couldn't have cared less about really he loved basketball as we know and you said you know you understood his his affection for baseball but it was the big you know um, news days where he really excelled I'll never forget his show um, in 2008, the morning after, uh, Barack Obama became, became president. I'll never forget his show that day. It was incredible to listen to how moved he was, how emotional he was that day. Um, you know, it would have been November when the Wednesday in November of 2008. Um, but yeah, you're right. He had a great second career yeah. and, and was a terrific yeah. analyst on what, on yes, college basketball absolutely. games. Absolutely terrific on it. Uh, the back page is today's Daily News. It's a full-blown picture of John Thompson hugging Patrick, saying, and with the quote, "He was a great man." That's the full page of the New York, the back page of the New York Daily News. Well, I would imagine in the Big East markets, and New York's obviously yeah. one of them. I mean, he nobody towered over that league like he did. That league doesn't become what it became without him, and there no, were and there were a ton of characters in, co in in coaches, you know, in that league with Carnesecca and Raleigh and and with Massimino and obviously Coach Thompson and Patino and Bayheim. I mean, big and heavyweights Gary. In, and Gary and Gary early on at BC. You know, and yeah. at the same time, and I, I got into a little bit of a debate, I think, with Neil and Rockville on this. He's like, the the big name um, and the entertaining coaches were in the Big East. I said, really? 
I said, the ACC in that same era had Lefty Drizel, Jim Valvano, Bobby Kremens, Coach K, and a guy you may have heard of, Dean Smith. You know, it was really those two leagues, um, you know, more of the blue blood in the ACC and the upstart, you know, in the Big East. It was a great rivalry back and forth, you know, and and certainly it peaked for the Big East in, in 85 when they got three teams to the Final Four, St. John's, Villanova, and uh, in Georgetown, um, with Villanova winning that, that shocking final at Rupp Arena in 85. Yeah, I, I I could talk about that era of college basketball forever. It was um, the 1980 final was the uh, Dr. Duncan Stein, Daryl Griffith, um, Louisville team beating UCLA. That would have been um, – I'm trying to think who – the coach of that UCLA team – who was the coach of that UCLA team? Because Wooden was long gone. Hmm. I gotta look this. I up. don't know. I, I want to say that it may have been. No, Larry Brown, of course. Larry Brown was the head coach of that team. Larry Brown coached that UCLA team. It was his first year at UCLA, and he took UCLA back to the finals, and they lost to Daryl Griffith and you know, aka Dr. Duncan Stein, in the final fifty nine fifty four. You know, he only lasted two years at UCLA. Before, you know, before probation, I'm sure, right? Had well, he didn't. He didn't last very long, anyway. <laughs> no, he didn't. Great coach, though. Great coach. Yeah. And then here he came to Kansas, and a few years later, he'd be in the national title game with Danny Manning and the Miracles, winning it um, in '88. Uh, that would have been, um, I believe. All right, let's get to uh, all the Washington football team news from last night. Right after uh, this word from one of our sponsors. All right, um, Tommy, uh, a story that broke last night um, about the NFL basically now overseeing the investigation by Beth Wilkinson into the skins over the alleged sexual harassment issues in the organization. Um, Goodell, you know, according to the stories, and then there's a little bit of conflict in, in some of these stories, you know, ESPN essentially reported that Goodell informed Dan Snyder of the change Monday night, and then Snyder indicated that it was his suggestion putting out a statement Um, Quote, recently the Washington football team launched an independent third-party investigation into allegations about our culture and incidents of harassment. In conversations with Commissioner Goodell, Tanya and I suggested that the NFL assume full oversight of the investigation so that the results are thorough, complete, and trusted by the fans, players, our employees, and the public. I appreciate Commissioner Goodell agreeing to our suggestion, and the entire Washington football team remains committed to fully cooperating with all aspects of the investigation, closed quote. Nobody believes that statement. Nobody believes that. Not even Snyder believes it. You know what that is? That's a thank you, sir. May I have another? Um. Okay. Uh. I, I have a slightly different take on that, but I, I want to hear yours first, but I just want to make sure that everybody's aware of the other piece to this story um, because this was not in the original stories that came out last night, but was in the post story written by Liz Clark, Mark Maskey, Will Hobson, and Beth Reinhardt that came out a little bit later 
um, and that is that Snyder told the NFL that he would release current and former team employees from non-disclosure agreements for the sole purpose of cooperating with the Wilkinson Walsh Law Firm uh, investigation. Um, the Post reported that. Go ahead, have at it. That's I've got because it. they 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 told them to. The NFL said, "Look, Goodell said that in his statement earlier uh, when when we talked last week. When Goodell said the statement that if there wasn't going to be any cooperation right. from the team, uh, Beth Wilkinson was supposed to inform the league about it, and they would address it. Right. He pretty much said the NDAs were going away. Then, who's paying for this? Oh, I think Snyder's paying for it. Well, then, then he didn't have I think, to. I, I don't, then he didn't have to I give think. the if if he if he's being disingenuous, saying that this was his and his wife's idea, and that he's releasing them from non-disclosures because he wants um, the investigation to to move forward with that, with his cooperation. He doesn't have to do that if he if if he's footing the bill. Of course, he doesn't have to do that. Except the NFL problem. This is all speculation. Okay. No inside information. But what I said on Thursday, I still think is true, is I think it's been an NFL investigation all along. I think that, you know, the NFL told him you need to investigate these things, you need to hire Beth Wilkinson, and you need to cooperate with it. And you're going to pay for all of it. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. I just think I think this statement, you, you know, when you said not even he believes that, I'm – I hear you. I mean, I I think that's definitely a possibility. Real quickly, though, are you going to give me any credit for sort of identifying this Tanya spin a few weeks ago as unusual and new? And sure, there could be the you know it could be an issue of he wants his wife now to be front and center because these are you know these are female sexual harassment claims. But I just, even this statement, Tommy, we would have never gotten a statement from the owner with Tanya and I suggested that the NFL assume full oversight of the investigation. Okay, I give you credit for what? For recognizing that he's that she's married to him. What am, what am I? What are you talking about? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. I told you a couple of weeks ago when Jason Wright was doing all of the interviews that he kept mentioning Tanya over and over again or the Snyders and was not doing the thing that always happens when you when they hire somebody new, which is Mr. Snyder did this, Mr. Snyder's great about that, Mr. Snyder, Mr. Snyder, Mr. Snyder. It was a completely different way of answering questions. In my sit-down with the Snyders, in my conversation is? with Tanya... I, I suggested that it's possible that they are looking to put Tanya front and center because there are female sexual harassment claims in the same way that people were certainly skeptical, you know, about the hiring of Julie Donaldson and the hiring of Jason Wright for, you know, different reasons. All I'm saying is that this is either, you know, a on purpose effort to make it look like Tanya's really involved in the decision making now in the organization or she might be. I think I think she may be. I mean, you know, but uh, I think think a lot of it's for show. I mean, having the female face of the franchise now uh, as part of of the top level organization is is just at a time when they're under attack 
for being so disrespectful uh, to females, I don't think is a coincidence. I just think it's too it's too tidy in terms of the Will timing. Will you at least it. admit that it's different, much different than ever before, to have her injected into almost every answer? I didn't know this was so important to you. Yes. <laughs> yes. I agree. It's different. It's, it is important to me because I hate when you do that. You do that all the time. If you had said this to me three weeks ago and I was just completely uh, poo-pooing it, you know, one time after another, you'd be incensed. You'd be like, oh, what are you talking? I told you about this three weeks ago. I told you Tanya. He's putting Tanya out there. Maybe it's because she's going to take the team over. When he but loses you, uh, it, with, you would be going the why, nuts. With, without the why, it's not like you discover plutonium. Okay? I didn't say that. I didn't say that. It was an observation that you were like, uh, I, I guess. And I'm like, what do you mean you guess? Look at the answers from everybody that just got hired. They're talking about her as if she did the interviews and she made the hire and she laid out what the job description was. It, and it's never been that way before. It's been Mr. Snyder, Mr. Snyder, Mr. Snyder. And you're like, okay, whatever. And 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 I, I, I certainly acknowledge that this be, could be done on purpose because of the nature of the allegations and the more female voices, especially, you know, in senior positions, perhaps the better. You know, it's being you, maybe she's cover for him right now. But you almost, you acted as if this wasn't even a thing. Boy, you're right. You were you were right on it. You don't miss a trick. Okay, good. Thanks. That's all. You don't have to go any further. Okay. Um, okay. So I had a conversation with somebody uh, last night. This person, I'm not going to mention by name because I promised I wouldn't, but he is very familiar. He's a, he's a fan of the podcast, and he's very familiar with the lawyers, um, with Beth Wilkinson and her firm, and then the Lisa Banks, Deborah Katz firm, and you know he's familiar with um, some of the league stuff that's going on, and he presented a couple of things to me, a couple of things that I've I've thought anyway, um, but then uh, a bit of a contrarian view to what's been going on and I I want to I want to hit you with like basically three things here. The first is this with respect to the investigator Beth Wilkinson. He was adamant. He said whether it's a league controlled investigation or a Dan controlled investigation, Beth Wilkinson isn't wasn't hired and isn't doing this investigation for anything but the truth. She's a tough fabulous, independent lawyer in major high demand. This person told me that people like Wilkinson would have never, by the way, been Dan's first choice. Um, And the league probably knows her because she used to work with, remember this guy, Ted Wells in Deflategate? Um, And that they probably knew her from Ted Wells, but that she's you know, and he believes that 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 she's been hired, whether it was by the league or Dan, at the suggestion of the league. Um, and basically, he said, "Look, th- there's Dan couldn't fire her any more than Archibald Cox um, could have been fired by than Nixon could have fired Archibald Cox." And for those not familiar with it, just just Google Saturday Night Massacre, which was uh, probably in in 1973. 
um, during the uh, beginning of beginnings of the Watergate investigation. But anyway, he said, how could, you know, the, the, the investigation, so many people want to say, how could the investigation be fair when Dan controls it? He said, Dan doesn't control this investigation. The league doesn't control this investigation. No one controls Beth. She doesn't need them as a client. She's way overbooked. And if anybody tries to tamper in this investigation, she will quit. And so he said, understand that about this investigation. Rest assured that whatever it produces is going to be, you know, independent. So that was one. Number two was this. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, go ahead. Okay. For one thing. Uh, she's worked for the league a number of times. Right. Okay. She was one of their uh, attorneys in the uh, concussion litigation. Right. She represented the league in the concussion litigation. And I'm looking for the quote here right now. Uh, And uh, sure enough, I can't find it, uh, basically. But uh, basically, she stood before reporters and said, that this notion that the league withheld and hid information from players about the damage from concussions is false. Well, you know, I don't know how her nose got back into the courtroom after that lie. So don't give me this, this stuff. Don't pontificate about what, what, a, what a stand-up, you know, buy the book lawyer is she stood up there and lied for the NFL about concussions and had no qualms doing it. Okay, still work. That's good information. That's good information. I'm sharing you the information from the person that I talked to. Let me get to the okay. next piece because that's that's a fair retort. Although I don't know what that is. I, I don't know enough about that investigation and whether or not her her investigation legitimately revealed that about the league at the time. I don't know that. You're just assuming that. Um. Here's like the, I'm assuming here's that Galileo more, knew that the Earth revolved <laughs> around the sun. Here's the more more interesting point. The more interesting point is this, and this guy made this point. He said, "You know, there's another way to look at the Snyder accusations from the last Post story, because basically, you had for the first, you know, in the July 16th story, none of it involved Dan Snyder." And the story from last week, you had three different incidents, the two videos and the allegation about fight night in 2004. Um, And he said, look, there are 42 women that have come forward. That's a large number, you know, uh, by any account for uh, a company and sexual harassment, et cetera. That's a lot of women, and and there's probably more that will, will come. Out of the 42, he said, 41 of them didn't make one specific accusation as it related to Dan. Now, you did have that male who was working in the organization for Larry say that Larry told him that they were putting together that 11-minute outtake for the owner or for an executive meeting. But really, the only true direct accusation is Tiffany Scorby's uh, accusation that Dan propositioned her on fight night in 2004 um, and asked her to show his good friend Tony Roberts a good time at the hotel room that they had upstairs at the Hilton. And his point was this, Tommy. When you get 42 women to come forward like that, when it's only one 
that that really takes it to the owner when basically you know that the post has you know assigned a ton of reporters and given them a ton of leeway and a ton of ability to go out and get something on Snyder and you know hopefully get something on Snyder and you only get one and it's a he said she said he said to me said in many ways that's vindication for Dan now, it doesn't mean that the story's over. He's just comment- commenting on where the story is right now through the two post stories. It doesn't mean that the bombshell, that the smoking gun isn't going to be in the next story. Um, how do you feel I mean, about it, that? It, it, well, that, that, that makes sense on some level. Uh, you know, it, it's like the first story that the post came out uh, with the 15 women we were saying that they were celebrating that because they right. thought it would be worse right. than it was. So if you, along those lines, even though this is a lot more women, it's still only one particular charge involving the owner. So he probably uh, breathed a little bit of a sigh of relief that it wasn't worse concerning him. So I can certainly understand that. Uh, we don't know. Uh, I would imagine that. I don't know if, if non-disclosure agreements were standard procedure for everyone who worked there, from interns to executive assistants, but just taking a guess that I would think that the people higher up who had more contact with Snyder probably were more likely to be forced to sign non-disclosure agreements. I would bet in an organization like that everybody signs an NDA. Really? Uh, yeah. That would be my guess that, you know, no matter if you're full time, you're uh, you're signing an NDA to take that job. And given, you know, given, you know, an NFL team situation and there's a lot of competitive information, you know, it's not like a technology business. Why did some people feel free to say speak and others say they couldn't because they had NDA? Um, good question. I mean, it could have been some sort of expiration of the NDA, you know, after a certain amount of time, um, maybe it expired or maybe more, it's more about, and I, and I know this to a certain degree, you know, having spent some years getting, you know, people to sign NDAs or having to sign them myself, they're really, really not very enforceable, (laughs) You know, non no. non competes are very enforceable. Non disclosures are they're really hard, um, and so there are some people that probably say, "Yeah, come chase me on this. That's fine." Yeah. But really, in that I, fir- I understand that. But in that first story, Tommy, there was just one woman who spoke on the uh, without the condition of anonymity, and in this story, you know, I guess uh, a few more. Um, but uh, he was anyway. The point that he was getting to was this. If there's not really a legitimate tie to him, you know, whether it's, you know, the the smoking gun, the the email, the recording, whatever, it's going to be very difficult to take his team away from him. You compare like what he was accused of by one person out of 42, where those 42 women were given the chance probably to take him down, right? And 41 of them didn't. And one did with a he said, she said, and it wasn't even him propositioning for himself. who's propositioning for a friend. Um, not that that makes it any different because she was an employee of his. So, But the point being that, um, you know, it pales in comparison to Robert Kraft's trans, transgression. 
And that, you know, it would be very hard based on these two post stories to force Dan Snyder out and keep Kraft. Okay, I agree with you on a lot of... Well, here's one level. What does Robert, what does Robert Kraft contribute to the NFL? A good team. <laughs> okay, a good team, very influential owner on a lot of committees, a top decision maker. Right. What is Dan Snyder? I know. What's the point of having Dan Snyder as an owner for the NFL? I mean, he's, he's, he's not influential. He has no particular supporters that we know of. He has no position of power. Uh, and, and here's the most important thing. He can't get a stadium built. And that's that. And in other words, the, that, that is driving the NFL crazy. That Snyder is so toxic that nobody will touch him. Because that's where they're looking for the money. That's what they really want from an owner. Get a stadium built. And he uh, can't do that. The so qu- so there, there's no reason for them to keep him. I mean, because he doesn't help them. That said, I agree with the assessment that this probably, what we know, is not probably going to be enough to drum him out. I went back and looked at Jimmy Haslam, the uh, owner of the Browns. He owns a company. He owns a company called Flying J. Yeah, those Flying J truck stops. Yeah, yeah, that was operated like a criminal enterprise for years in terms of overcharging uh, customers. And 20, 20 high-ranking uh, uh, officials in that company were indicted, but but Haslam was never touched, even though his company was basically a criminal ran like a criminal enterprise. And they didn't do anything to Jimmy Haslam. You know, and that was criminal stuff. Now, 2020 is different. You know, that was 2017, 2018. 2020 is so unpredictable. It's sexual harassment and, and, and sexual uh, misconduct in the workplace uh, may be more severe uh, perception-wise today than robbing people of money. Okay, uh, so but based on the fact that they they didn't touch Haslam, and I think they had a lot more reason to. I don't think I don't think this is enough to take take it away from Snyder. Other than the fact that they just sit there and say, "Why are we keeping this guy around?" Right, but that's where you get into. You know, um, is bad management, bad culture, the inability to build a stadium enough to expose the other owners to him going after their skeletons? And I think that's where you get into the, you know, is as you would say, is the juice worth the squeeze? And, you know, it may be true, and just consider this, he may be an arrogant, terrible managing owner who treats people poorly, but that doesn't make him a sexual harasser. And if if they don't have something that really ties him to that specifically, other than being the owner that oversaw a culture of sexual harassment, it's going to be tough. By the way, the, the one last thing, and, and by the way, we're, this is all based on what we know today. doesn't mean that the next article won't have something or the one after that. Um, you've got people like Gloria Allred and, and, and some of these attorneys. They're going to be looking for anything that they can uncover. Um, the other thing that, that was mentioned to me um, was this. 
This guy said, look, you know who may really be in trouble, legitimately in trouble, and may pay dearly, is Dwight Schar. Because if this defamation lawsuit, if this motion, this discovery of motion, motion discovery for, you know, who was funding this, this uh, salacious smear campaign leading up to that first post story, if it comes back to him, it's going to be outrageously costly for him. They'll have to boot him out of the league, maybe long before Dan gets booted out of the league. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, he may be completely innocent, but there's certainly, you know, uh, an allegation or at least a a hint of an allegation that he was behind the Epstein and the sex trafficking and the drug trafficking and the NF and the bribing of NFL referees madness of that particular week prior to the actual story, first story coming out. Yeah, I mean, and, and what what would that mean to uh, what will that mean for Dan Snyder's relationship with Joe Gibbs? I mean, Joe Gibbs. I know you know Gibbs. You know, has been friendly with Snyder, uh, and they've been business associates. But he's cl- he's been close to Dwight Sharp right. for decades. I mean, Dwight Sharp is supposedly the one who helped engineer bringing Joe Gibbs back, and what would that mean for the relationship with Gibbs? That would be pretty devastating if, if that would come out. But remember, uh, and no one else has reported this except the New York Times and what it means. You have this arbitration hearing between the minority right. owners and Snyder. Right. And we don't, know, we don't know anything about it. I'm looking Goodell, at the New York Goodell Times appointed the right arbitrator, now. right? Okay, uh... The three men, meaning the three minority owners, asked the NFL to resolve the matter, okay, the dispute between Snyder and minority owners, to resolve the matter and other issues. The commissioner's office appointed an arbitrator in late June, according to two people familiar with the matter who were not authorized to speak publicly. The NFL declined to comment. That just sits out there. What does that mean? It may be nothing. I, I, it may just be a small little thing. But that, but uh, so the league is already uh, litigating. There's, there's the so case. much going on. Yes. There's the, yes. The, there's this arbitration with the minority owners. There's the Beth Wilkinson investigation. There's you know this this sense that the post has just gotten started on this stuff. It's really and and football season, by the way, is less than two weeks away, and I can't wait for that. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. A lot going on. Uh, you know, not the least of which is, uh, like you said, football season is two weeks away. You have the you have a head football coach who is already beloved, who's now a sympathetic figure because of the cancer. That was diagnosed, and the treatments that he's going to have to go through could result in the Plan B coach being your head coach. <laughs> Maybe some of these Sundays, yeah. Mister Kiss My Ass, Jack Del Rio. <laughs> How would that be for this team? You know, all of a sudden the Rainbow Warriors, the Washington Redskins, to have Jack Del Rio as the face and the spokesman for the team. Jack Del Rio. How much, how much do you think that Jack Del Rio contributed to that 
social justice discussion they did on their day off. Uh, when they call practice, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I actually would be really interested to see if he's actually addressed his team at all um, about you know how outspoken. Look, everybody in the organization right now is so, other than the owner who took out that Twitter page, and I don't think has tweeted anything yet. But I mean, uh, Jason Wright, he's on Twitter all day long. I mean, he tweets out. I mean, he he he's a big social media guy. Julie, obviously. I mean, they are really getting after it. By the way, you saw that they were the last team locally to to send uh, sympathies um, to the Thompson family, right? Somebody put were they? The, yeah, somebody put out. Um, uh, I'd have to find it now. But at one point yesterday, there was a uh, a tweet going around. That basically all four, you know, the Capitals, the Nationals, the Wizards had all put out statements, um, you know, uh, about John Thompson, and the, and then they had the Washington social media account that uh, had this tweet that said "We back" and had to shot a FedEx field <laughs> because they had the live um, practice and scrimmage there yesterday, uh, but. Uh, by the time they got to last night, by the way, it wouldn't even surprise me at all if they, you know, in their their mind's eye that this wasn't even necessarily a story until somebody probably made them aware of the fact that they were the only team that had not reached out to say something about Thompson. So last night they did, you know, they put out a picture um, with a statement from Ron Rivera, you know, saying a legend on and off the court, you know, rest in peace, Coach Thompson. What time last night, do you know? Oh God! Are you gonna? Is this a column? Well, no, no, no. It's not a column. Um, no, no, no. But yeah, I, I, I want to point they, something out. Okay. They put they put it out at six twelve p.m. last night. That was several several hours after every other team in town. I'm going to find the um, the tweet that was. Uh, That's okay. I just no. Here it, it is. Here it is. Here it is. Yeah. So yesterday. Um, uh, there's just a tweet going on around where, with the Wizards expressing – I don't have the times on these. The Nationals, I can look them up. The Nationals and the Capitals all putting out statements. And then they've got the Washington football team, we back with a shot of FedEx Field. <laughs> um, but they did eventually get to it uh, later in the day. So there And you it was like 6.12, right? 6.12 p.m. it says, yeah. Okay. Okay. What do you, what do you tell me why you're doing this? Well, because I was curious if they beat the Ravens, who put out a, a, a basically a statement about Thompson, and they did manage to beat the Baltimore football team. Oh, they did. What time did the Ravens put a statement out? Uh, Seven fifty. Okay. Let me see exactly what time the Nationals put their statement out. The Nationals put their statement out at eleven thirty-four a.m. yesterday. <clears throat> Why are we doing this? Is it really that interesting? Um, it's not that interesting. I, I agree. The Washington Capitals put out their statement. Uh, the Wizards put out their statement at 1242, and the Capitals – I can't find the Capitals one. Um, but whatever. You get the point. They were all much earlier in the day. Um, the Capitals put their statement – the Mystics put their statement out at 1133 a.m., Obviously, Ted, being a Georgetown guy, was all over right. with his teams. And the Wizards put it out at 11.22 a.m., and the Capitals 
I, I can't. Whatever. I, that's enough of that. Um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, so we got a lot going on. And the team practiced yesterday on beautiful FedEx field turf, apparently. And um, Chase Young looked really, really good. All right. I uh, want to get finish up the show with um, a little bit of basketball talk, NBA talk. Um, and uh, one quick thought about the football team as we uh, are fast approaching the beginning of the season. But quick word today about Manscaped. Manscaped's got you covered, keeping the hair looking nice and trimmed and feeling fully supported. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. The premium lawnmower 3.0 is waterproof. It includes an LED light and is made with advanced skin-safe technology. You can get this trimmer inside their Perfect Package 3.0, which also includes the Manscaped Crop Preserver. Tommy. It's a ball deodorant and a ball toning spray, which is called the Crop Reviver. Both super practical and they smell great too. Plus for a limited time when you order the perfect package kit, you get two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag and the Manscaped Anti-Chafing Boxer Briefs. And those boxer briefs One of the favorite parts of the collection, they've got an optimal temperature control with their crop cooling technology. It keeps your pride and joy supported and cool. The waistband is also super elastic to reduce chafing and rubbing. Pair these boxer briefs with their pH balancing liquid products like the Crop Preserver and you're ready for anything. Get 20% off and free shipping if you use the code THEATHLETIC20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Guys, if you got issues and you're not keeping yourself tight, get to manscaped.com. Use THEATHLETIC20 from the moose to the caboose. Always use the right tools for the job. All right, let's finish up uh, the show. Uh, I, I got something I want to say before <laughs> okay. we finish up. All right, go ahead. With basketball, yeah. okay? I might want to mention, you know, they've been playing baseball. Yeah, I know, and the Nats are terrible. And uh, they're, they're like the, the second worst record in the league. Nationally. 12 and 20. National, well, what league did you think I was talking about <laughs> when I said league? Huh? Well, I don't know. Major League the Tanya, in the Major the Tanya Leagues. Snyder League. <laughs> yeah, they have the second worst record in the National League. The Pirates are worse. And uh, they have the two best hitters in, probably in baseball right now, in Juan Soto and Trey Turner, two hottest hitters in the game. But they have some of the worst pitching. They've got no starting pitching right now. Austin Voth and Eric Fetty killed them in their starts. Uh, and uh, Strasburg out for the year. Annabelle Sanchez has not been like he was in the second half. They basically got one guy they can rely on right now. Two guys, Corbin and Max Scherzer. Max Scherzer. So Nationals are in trouble. I don't particularly care in some ways because this still seems like exhibition bullshit to me. That doesn't mean a goddamn thing. The only thing that should mean anything to any Nationals fan is it's September 1st and Mike Rizzo still doesn't have a contract beyond the end of the season. It's ridiculous. I mean, keep in mind, they're <clears throat> right now, they're only, I'll tell you, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They are only three games out of the 10 spot because 10 teams from each league go to the postseason. Um, you know, it's funny. 
I I knew that Turner was having a good year, and I certainly knew that Soto was having a good year. He had two more home runs last night. His 11 home runs are second in the National League in home runs. And remember, he missed, you know, what, three or four or five games to start the season, whatever it was. I did not realize until you just said that, talking about Turner and Soto, that right now they're 1-2 in the National League in batting average. Turner's hitting 377, Soto's hitting 367. They're 1-2, and that... Um, and that Turner leads the league in hits with 49 uh, hits. And that, uh, I think I already mentioned, Soto's 11 homers are second most um, in the National League as well. So, yeah, it's it's pitching. You know, they've had some struggles offensively at times, although recently they put some runs up. In that one win over the weekend against the Red Sox, it was like 10-2, to two, they exploded. And then they had some offense last night and the night before, but they gave up, you know, far too many runs. They gave up nine to the Red Sox in a 9-5 loss, and last night was 8-6. to six. Um, I, You know, one of the things I do, Tommy, I, I look at a lot of box scores baseball-wise. I look at the Nats every morning, you know, uh, especially as I get ready for the show. I Last night they played the Phillies, but I really keep up to date with Harper and Rendon. You know, Harper... You see the year Rendon's, you see the year Rendon's having since he came back. Uh, first of all, it's a terrible team right now. You know that. Um, They, they, they stink as a team right now. Um, but Anthony Rendon is having, you know, uh, he's hitting close to 300. He was 300 the other night when I checked and he's having a really good season offensively, but they're, they're 435 on base percentage. Uh, that's a, that's, that's great. He's, they're horrible as a team though. Um, they, they, I think they're the worst team. They may be the worst team in the American league unless Boston is. Look that up real quickly. The Angels, yeah, the Angels are the worst team in baseball. Uh, second worst team oh, in baseball. And that guy spent a lot of money on, on his baseball team, Artie Marina. A lot of money. Um, but I was also mentioning that I, I, I always look to see what Bryce Harper um, did that night. Harper's got a terrific on-base percentage right now as well. I think it's in the you know mid-400s. Hold on for a second. 431 on-base percentage leads his team. Um, 568 slugging percentage um, is uh, leads his team. His bat, his batting average, whatever, it's 284. I mean, he's still getting on base. He had two walks last night. It was 0 for two. I know, but they, you see, they replaced Bryce Harper. They replaced Bryce Harper with Juan Soto. Yeah, they no, have no, no, not I know that. replaced Anthony Rendon yet. Hundred oh, percent right. Um, I want to just mention the NBA. I know a lot of you haven't been paying attention. I'm telling you, it's really good. It's really good right now. The performances. How can it be really good when you're scoring 140, 130 points a game? How can that be? Well, really last good? night you got you had a very tense game six, 104 to 100. All right, the Thunder beat the Rockets 104 okay. to 100. I love Chris Paul's game. God, he's so good and smart and clutch. Um, man, Russell Westbrook was a was awful last night. You know that that was his second game back. Um, and he is not all back, and he, you know, he had, he had the same issues that he has typically um, in these games at late, where he's just going too fast on a key possession. They were down 102 to 100, under 10 seconds to go, and he drives the ball into traffic and throws it away instead of giving the ball to Harden. I don't know what they were doing on that last pos- possession. It should have been Harden's possession, but tonight, Tommy, and I don't know if you're following this or not. I'm going to assume that you're not. Tonight you get the seventh and deciding game of Utah against Denver. Are you familiar with what's going on in that series right now? No. 
Okay. It's the, are you or not? No, I'm not. Okay. I'm being honest. Um, I don't like saying it, but no, I have J- no idea. Tommy, Jamal Murray. How many points does Dan Issel have? <laughs> How many points does Alex English have? Um, yeah. Jamal Murray has gone for 50-plus in this series twice. It has been incredible shooting performances. All right, in the last game, first of all, they're they're on the verge of becoming the 13th team in NBA history to to rally from three one down to win a series. Um, do you know? I, I, do you know that I think the first team to do it, or the second team to do it, was the Bullets in 1979 against the Spurs. I could be wrong about that, but I think I'm right. Um, the uh, Jamal Murray, who was a good scorer, not a superstar player. Um, in the last three games, has scored 142 points. He's gone 50, 42, and 50. The shooting percentages, Tommy, shot 18 of 31, 17 of 26, and 17 of 24. He's shooting 65% from the floor. From behind the arc, 9 of 15, 4 of 8, 9 of 12. He shot 75% from behind the arc the other night in the Game 6 win. In the same series, Donovan Mitchell, who plays for Utah, has gone for 50-plus on two different occasions as well. It's the first time in NBA history you've had four 50-point-plus performances, and it's Two guys, one from each team, Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell. Mitchell's averaging in the series, I think, 39 a game, 38.7 a game. He's gone for 57 in one game, 51 in another, and 44 in the last game. It has been an incredible show to watch the two of them go back and forth offensively. Unlimited range. Murray's ridiculous with his range. But a highly entertaining series in Game 7s tonight. I'm going to do my best to watch that. I think it's a 9 o'clock start. If it's 9 o'clock, I'm good. If it's 10, could be problematic. Um, and then the other series, again, the game last night between OKC and Houston was awesome. I love Chris Paul. I'm rooting for OKC. But, Tommy, the best player. Is not LeBron James in the in these post in this postseason. It's not Giannis. It's not Anthony Davis. It is Kawhi Leonard, who continues to deliver with games on the line in the postseason better than anybody in recent memory. The other night or the other afternoon against the Mavericks, three-two series lead they had. The Mavericks had cut a twenty-three point lead to six in the fourth quarter. Leonard comes into the game and scores eight of the next ten points, game over. I love Kawhi Leonard. I love his style. I love his demeanor. He's a killer. And somebody pointed this out yesterday. You know, his shoe company is New Balance, which, by the way, doesn't mean much in the NBA. Nike is king, right? If he wins the title this year and wins another MVP, it will be three different teams he's led to an NBA title with three different finals MVPs. Now, LeBron could do that this year, too, if, if the Lakers win it. But does, ev- does anybody ever mention Kawhi Leonard in the greatest of all time conversation? And I'm not saying he should be, but it's been pointed out several times this week that if he were a Nike guy in that sport, it would be a much more 
uh, it would be a conversation that would take place more often. If he wins this title, and I think the Clippers are, I bet him to win the title, and I, I cannot wait to see them against the Lakers. But Kawhi Leonard is just amazing and so good in the biggest games and with the games on the line. Can I mention something, Kevin? Yes. I don't know if I've ever said this before, and I don't know if people realize it, but when he was in college and going into the draft, you wanted to draft him. I did. You wanted the Wizards to draft him, and you were right on top of that. I just wanted to make sure people knew that. You've said it before. That's the only thing about a, a prediction that I got right that you've ever remembered. You remember all the ones I've gotten wrong. Um, yeah, you're damn but right. But I'm serious. You were. You were. That could have, that could have been a, historic, a history-changing moment if they, had drafted, uh, if they had drafted him. Instead of Jan Vesely. When they had the chance. Yes. You know, I love changing the course of history. I loved Leonard in at San Diego State. I was, you know, obviously betting a lot of college basketball, and there were a lot of late nights where I was watching him in San Diego State, and I was like, my God, that guy looks with those long arms. He he looks like he's going to be an unbelievable NBA defender, and he was a and you could tell he had a great stroke, even though I did not anticipate that he would grow into to the scorer and the three point shooter because he's got great range too. But to me, I mean, I'm glad you remembered that. But to me, the conversation that I'll never forget having was with Ernie Grunfeld before the 2009 draft. Doc and I were doing a show shortly before you and I started doing a show together. And Flip Saunders had been hired by the Wizards. And they had us out to Verizon Center. We did our show. Doc and I did our show from, uh, you know, uh, it was actually like a suite that they set up for our show. And then after the show, I ended up hanging out and talking to Ernie Grunfeld for 45 minutes. And we were talking about a lot of different things because he knows I love basketball. And we had had conversations before. But we started talking about that draft. And I'll never forget saying to him, I love Steph Curry. I think he's going to be a really good NBA player because he's got that super quick release and he's just big enough where I think he's going to be a big-time scorer at the NBA level. And Ernie said to me, "Ah, I kind of like Steph, a guy I like. And he loved James Harden. He thought James Harden was going to be a superstar. And I remember this conversation. It was the draft that Blake Griffin went number one and Hashim Thabit, the big tall dude from UConn, went number two. You know, so it was not <clears throat> it was not the um uh the, the it, Griffin obviously turned out to be great. Um Curry went seventh overall, Harden went third to Oklahoma City. Um Oh, my God. You know, I've been referring to them as Oklahoma State recently. Oklahoma City, OKC. Anyway, he loved Harden. And I remember saying to him, really? Because I had watched Harden at Arizona State, and I just didn't see it on Harden. I thought he was slow. I thought he was too methodical. I didn't think he was very athletic. And I remember him saying, nah, he's big and strong, and he's got a handle, and he's going to be a big-time scorer in the NBA. So we had a conversation where he was definitely right, and I was wrong about Harden. He didn't disagree with me about Curry, but that's the the other guy that he loved in that draft, Tommy, and he said he doesn't know if he's going to come over and play in the NBA. He went off about Ricky Rubio. He loved Rubio. 
But despite Tommy, the fact that he loved Rubio and he thought Rubio would be there at number five overall, basically with Flip Saunders and with Abe, you know, in his last, you know, they wanted to win. They wanted to make the playoffs. And they traded number five overall for Randy Foy and Mike Miller to Minnesota. That's one of the worst trades, honestly, that he ever made. And he made some good trades over the years. I don't. I, I know what his draft history was. Um, but that was just a horrible, horrible trade. And he, he would have taken in that draft, he would have taken Rubio at five. He wouldn't have taken Curry. I'm Listen, pretty sure. Everybody, everybody who's listening, and I know we have thousands of listeners, thank you for listening and making Kevin's podcast such a huge success. <laughs> But for everybody who is listening, this was Ernie Grunfeld's move. He would he would sit down and he would talk to reporters and media members in town <laughs> and talk basketball with them. Right. And and he was a likable guy. Uh, Very. You know, he 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 called me a few times early in our relationship until he until he got tired of reading his his <laughs> one loss record in my columns and he stopped calling me. But this was a smart thing that Ernie did. You know, he took people and, and took them behind the curtain, which made them more pro-Ernie and less willing to criticize him. He did this with all the media in town. This was Ernie's move, and it, 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 it carried him a long way. You're right about that. He was it's smart. It was a smart thing to but, do. But, you know, he was also a really good guy. Like, you know... Yeah. He was a terrific guy, even though you know he was not a great general manager. Although, again, I my—I mean, you always said this. Don't do it. Don't do it. He wasn't Don't Vinny Serrano. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he wasn't. He had a personality. Oh, but Tommy, I mean, you could call him in his office, and he would sit there and 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 talk to you for yeah. you know thirty minutes, and you know you could his 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 assistant was Kathy. I, I remember and. Hey, does Ernie have any time just to chat? Scott Jackson used to talk to him more than anybody. I mean, Jackson and Ernie really chatted all the time, but there were certain conversations with Ernie that I'll never forget, and I remember how much he loved Harden and that draft, but he knew that he he thought that he wasn't going to have a chance to get him. But what I didn't know at that point was they were going to trade the pick anyway. You know, the, yeah. that they were going to trade it because they wanted veteran players to, you know, make a run at the playoffs with, you know, a veteran coach and Flip Saunders. When, imagine, you know, them instead of Randy Foy and Mike Miller, they could have drafted Steph Curry, who was on the board there with their pick. Um, you know, anyway, how about that? How about Curry in 2009 and then two years later instead of Jan Vesely, Kawhi Leonard? Uh, you would have had the number one team in town by miles would have been your Washington Wizards over the last seven years, six years, Absolutely. if those two players had been drafted by the team. But you could say yes, that about a, a, lot, a lot of teams passed on, on Leonard and several teams passed on Curry too. Happens all the time. Um, one last thing before we go. Um, I asked the following question for calls today on the radio show because I was thinking about something, Tommy, um, that I think everybody believes that the skins are going to be better defensively. That is the default right now. Like, what are you sure of? Well, they they, they got to be better defensively. 
You know, they added Chase Young, and even if Chase Young isn't exactly Nick Bosa in terms of elevating the rest of the defense, although he may be, he may be, they've had some talent there, and now they've got some coaching, and the defense is going to be good. Um, And at the same time, you know, nobody really knows about the offense. It's the biggest question mark. So simple question to you. If the assumption is that the defense is good, if not very good, and the offense isn't, what is the upside in 2020? Because I went back and looked at a lot of teams over the last several years that had really good defense but didn't have good offense. And the good offense, especially when it was quarterback-related, meant that they really didn't have a chance. You know, there are a couple of examples. Jacksonville in 2017 got to the AFC title game with great defense, but they also were the number one rush rush offense in the NFL with Leonard Fournette, who, by the way, got well, cut that, yesterday. That, that's the combination. That that was yes. the uh, Tennessee combination last year. Yeah. So, w- what do you th- the, the what do you think their upside is? Because there are teams like the the Broncos. Um, the the Broncos in 2016 are the best example, right? Peyton Manning wasn't very good. Their offense it wasn't very good. Their defense was dominant, and they won the Super Bowl. But in 2017, that same defense, number three overall, with Trevor Simeon and Brock Osweiler, they were five and eleven, but they were dominant defense. In 2018, Buffalo had a dominant defense, and they were six and ten. The Jets have had a couple of teams with dominant defense that haven't been very good. Um, somebody pointed out that the Bears in 2018 had a dominant defense and got to the postseason and won 12 games. That's true. But Mitch Trubisky was pretty good that year, you know, and they still didn't win a playoff game. They, they couldn't score enough points at home to win a playoff game, but they were 12-4. and four. But do you see this team, if it has really good defense, what's the upside? Well, it's hard to say, Kevin, because their offense is such a mystery. Uh, but I'm saying you know, assume the offense isn't good. If, if assume the offense isn't good, I think uh, six and ten. Yeah, I think I think it's probably eight and eight. I th- I could see in that division you know, here, eight wins why, with a really good defense. I mean, uh, with a really good defense, why you need the other component of it? You need the field posi- You need to win the field position paddles to take advantage of a real good defense. You don't want to put a real good defense on its heels all the time with bad field position. You know, you, you don't want to keep a real good defense on the field all the time, uh, which means you've got to have a ball control offense, which means running the ball. Okay? Yeah. In order to take advantage of a great defense, you need those two components, or else even a great defense is going to get beaten down and worn down. No doubt. Um, and that's what happened to Denver in 2017, Buffalo 2018, some of the Jet teams that have been good defensively. More often than not, if you don't have, in this day and age of football, if you don't have good offense, you're, you're, you're limited. I mean, there are examples, and we pointed them out, um, but if your offense isn't very good, meaning you can't run it, your quarterback's not that great, you don't have weapons, even if you have a dominant defense, you know, seven, you know, seven, eight wins may be the best you can do. And that's what I would say the answer is, that their, their upside is eight wins if their defense is excellent but the offense is not. Um, but 
again, the, the examples of great defense and they won games was Jacksonville, the number one rush offense in the NFL in 2017. And they got to the postseason. The irony of that is their defense carries them in a 10-3 wildcard weekend win over Buffalo. And then the next weekend they go to Pittsburgh and win 45-42 to when everybody was expecting 17-10. to um, But there were a lot of turnovers in that game. But they, they couldn't get off the field either in that game, which was weird. But uh, anyway, we're getting closer to football season. I think we're going to yes, have we it. we are. By the way, how about the Big Ten? One last thing. The Big Ten. 11-3 to, to to postpone the season after it looked like at the end of last week they were going to go ahead and play. And they were going to play on Thanksgiving weekend, which was stupid to start a season Thanksgiving weekend. But they voted yesterday 11-3, to the presidents and chancellors, to postpone the fall football season. Um, and, you know, I guess... I still think it's a smart thing to do. Yeah. A lot of schools, Tommy. My nieces are at at SEC schools. One's at Tennessee. One's at South Carolina. My niece, who's at South Carolina, she's got COVID nineteen. First week at school, really? She gets infected. Oh my god! She's in basically a host a hotel room where they're quarantining the students that have it. But apparently, oh. there's been a major outbreak on campus. She's she's not symptomatic. She had a bit of a sore yeah. throat, and that was it. Um, uh, and same thing in Tennessee. My niece didn't get it, but a lot of people on campus have it. I mean, you can. Alabama apparently had a, has had a major outbreak. Um, you know, I I'll be honest with you. I don't think they should come home. I don't think they should be on planes or trains or you know bringing that stuff home. I think they should hang in there because right now, you know, I, I don't know. At South Carolina, anyway, I could be wrong about this. My sister might call me today with it with an update on it, but I don't know that anybody's getting sick. We'll see. We will see. All right, anything else from you? That's all I got today, boss. We had a lot going on today. <laughs> we had a lot going on today. All right, then. Uh, we're done for the day. Uh, have a great rest of the day this evening. Possibility of no podcast tomorrow, um, but we will definitely be back on Thursday if we don't do one tomorrow. Take care.